RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. This archive recording was the very first RDI Insights interview. It was made in April 2006 with the designer Thomas Heatherwick, who was beginning to make waves, and we all know how big those waves became, with significant projects completed around the world. The essence of Thomas's thinking and approach to creating is captured here in this 17-year-old conversation, along with my nervousness. We kick off with my asking Thomas about his way of thinking and the reworking of an existing Hong Kong shopping mall. You've literally just come back from Hong Kong, where I know that you're in the process of um, masterminding the reconfiguration of a of a one million square foot shopping mall, which is which is a far cry from uh, producing a, a spiral zipped handbag. I mean, the contrast <laughs> couldn't be couldn't be greater. So I, I'm. It, it, it would seem to me that a one million square foot shopping mall um, is a bit of a daunting task. Uh, how's it going? What, what's been going on there? What are you actually going to do? Have you got any plans for it yet? Well, um, I, my my interest is trying to make somehow to try and make extraordinary projects happen because I trained at a time when there were books full of amazing ideas that architects and designers had had and actually very little of it was ever happening and you had so it was there were world famous designers architects particularly who'd never built anything and so i've put great importance on trying to make projects happen and um whether that's something on the smallest scale or on the largest scale and uh the this bag idea was something that an idea that came up quite a while ago and whenever i got paid for something else i'd um put some money into trying to make another prototype or experiment and it, it gradually um we got closer to something that m- might be might work as a as a product but mm-hmm. the project in hong kong meanwhile mm-hmm. in a way is uh, uh, um well it's like everything the studio has ever done in the last 12 years joined together into one thing and then doubled and doubled again i mean it's it's uh it's like a, a working on a my father was in the Marines and he was on a uh, aircraft carrier. He sort of described how the aircraft carrier is like its own whole town. Yeah. And this project in Hong Kong is the has four skyscrapers sitting on it and with their um, concrete columns piercing through this giant um, podium object that's 20 years old and was built when Dallas and Dynasty were on television. And the 1980s were in full swing yeah. and, and people wore shoulder pads yeah. and the buildings kind of got shoulder pads um, in effect. And there's, but it was also a time when daylight wasn't so important uh, in public spaces and the quality of um, 
there wasn't so much competition in the what uh, public spaces were like and also a more retail environment. And funnily enough, this is one of the most public spaces. Hong Kong's so hot yeah. that a you need to be in air-conditioned spaces for many months of the year. And yeah. so places like this are where you go and um, people take their first ever boyfriend or girlfriend and wander around and spend time together. So it's enormously public. Yeah. And uh, so it's – but it's kind of like a, a surgery where you've got to keep the patient alive um, while trying – changing their hearts and lungs and things it's it's got a you you mean it's got to very fundamental change while exactly while very fundamental um uh, change happens rather than so it's it's very it's really interesting intellectually trying to juggle all these things so i've i've um there's a focus and attention that's happened over the last year while um so far it really um working on the sort of 25 projects within it. One, actually, one of the best bits of the project will actually be uh, the toilet door hinge. <laughs> We've invented a new way of making this toilet door hinge. <laughs> so on the largest scale, there's gigantic um, new bridges and um, aspects to it. But actually, and then some of the, so the interesting thing is, in a way, it's like so working on the handbag at yeah. the same time as... Uh, space planning on a large scale so that that's what's always interested me about architecture in that it has there's a scale where it's contributing to a city yeah but then there's also a scale which is just as important as a piece of furniture or an earring or a piece of jewelry and the, the these different scales that you interact with something and so what's the timeline for this project i mean when It'll probably take about three and a half years from now to really? to complete. So, when and are you, are you the principal um, visionary involved with this? We we we're, we're the lead designer. Yes, you are. And so you will be bringing in other designers to work. We, we we've actually got the original architects who built the project who know the the who know the building back to front are are acting (laughs) they're 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 acting as our executive architects for the permission permission side and we've got the original engineer who worked on it so you have to be very careful with what you say you can't just say that's it's rubbish because then you find you're treading on someone's toes and it's um so are you playing any sort of um you know, signature piece in there, something that's particularly dramatic or unusual, or, or are you seeing it as a sort of? Well, I'm I'm sort of interested in how the, the whole the whole building is is famous in within Hong Kong, yeah. And and I'm keen to try and integrate specialness within it yeah. rather than something being separate yeah, from that. that. But the the uh, there are enormous possibilities within it for um for focal for focus focused specialness within uh defined functions that would give value to a a developer who has to has to justify value to their shareholders sure but there's quite a visionary man leading this uh company and he actually built it originally and he's standing back and asking to reinvent what he built 20 years ago which is quite i think quite an extraordinary thing to be able to have your baby that you made your name on and be able to also stand back from it and reconceive it yeah and the relationship is going well and you're happy so far with 
it, it's going very well. Yeah, oh, good. So, so it, okay. Well, um, the thick of things. Yeah. The, the thing I wanted to ask you, which is this thing um, that you you've been dubbed, in fact, by Terence Conran as a as a Leonardo figure. And I'm sure you've heard that before. How does that make you feel? Oh, uh, um, well, it's very it's very nice of Terence to say that. I mean, Terence has has supported the studio uh, enormously when. Uh, from when I was actually a student and met him for the first time, and um, so he he's he's biased. I I and you think made probably didn't you for his garden well, at large. Well, wooden... at the time I was at the Royal College of yeah. Art, and the the Royal College of Art is in a far too valuable a place to build a, a college where people are going to have space to really think freely and experiment. It's it's the piece of real estate's worth far too much, so things are very squashed. And so a workshop in which you might build something is tiny, really, relative to what you can do. And so at that time, I I actually had an idea for a a new way of making display cabinets and books. And Terence came into the unit to the college and I managed to sort of grab him in a corridor somewhere. And he and asked him if there was any way I could speak to him for five minutes, because I was interested not just in what my design was you know the, everyone was just there obsessed with their own design but i was mm. interested in its um its relationship to why someone else might want it or how someone objective would look at it yeah and therefore what its real value was in a marketplace and he he said well come and see me at butler's wharf and so i went to to see him for five minutes and ended up being there for about four hours. And one of the things I showed him was this idea for a way of making a small building. And he was so kind and just said, well, um, why don't you come and live at my house for, for four months to build it? And so I, um, I, I lived in Berkshire on the most, in with space, use it with the work, with this fantastic furniture workshop that's there. Um, and, uh, Living, living there, eating off these really nice wooden plates that they had on the, and um, and I actually fell asleep on in front of Terence on one of the first times in a dinner at dinner or something and just collapsed because um, I was we, we were working so hard on this, um, and then in the end he actually bought the structure which for, I'd for seen the, for there, which I'd seen in his one of one of his many books on um, right his the garden book in particular is very nice and it looks like a beautiful building and and it's it's in it's in wood and it's um uh, yes. what what is it it's made from um birch plywood that's right yes and it's it, I, at the time it's just an ex, it's an yeah. experiment it's just a very big experiment yeah. there's an experiment in making could you make uh, something that might loosely be called architecture yeah out of only two components because I was sort of there thinking why buildings often so fussy and fiddly and why are they conceived in this, this sort of what felt to me quite formulaic way. And um, so this was, it's more like uh, two piles. I think I'd been making something else actually and made these pile of components. I'd been looking at the pile of components and looking at what I was going to do with them and, and looking at them thinking, well, actually the pile was more interesting than what I was supposed to be doing with the pile. And that evolved into saying, well, if you had two, if you piled these pieces, quite hard to do when, yeah. when I'm gesturing yeah, all yeah. over the place here. Yeah. But I was interested in the idea of a building being made of almost like a, a pile of cards. Yeah. But if you 
parallelogram is over, it's across on itself, it would want to fall over. Yeah. But if you get two piles, you can shuffle them into each other and they'll structurally hold themselves up. Yeah. So this building really was an experiment in in using only two components which cut out were cut out of big sheets of plywood and just piled up turned into a building so i wasn't designing doorknobs or no. window catches or your or walls ceilings so it, it was these components kind of made everything it's quite a simple thing but it was um uh i sort of believe very much in making the real thing yeah as as much as you can as your experiment and yeah. not uh confining things to models that are there sweetly cutely representing what the real world could be like if only that frustrating real world out there would come and grab you well actually funny enough as an aside uh, what you just said strikes note to me because as a kid i always loved the concept cars the concept cars were always brilliant and the real cars are always boring and it's still like that you know, you see concept cars and you think, well, why do they make, not make them now? And what I'm told is that the marketing people get involved and uh, they iron out all of the kind of innovation and end up, you end up with these rather bland cars. Yeah. That's what does it. Because, you know, I know from the faculty, when you see um, car designers work and you see their concept work, it's fantastic. Mm. Anyway, what I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to go on to now before we get off into, onto those sort of territories is I want to get an insight into your early life okay and i know that your uh, your mother um was a beat expert he's a beat expert um your father was a musician um your grandmother was a textile designer for marks and spencers and your grandfather was a writer was a writer on engineering innovations so that strikes me as being the most fantastic backdrop for for a potentially creative um child um, mm-hmm. So I just want to, I'd like to, to know how that sort of manifested itself in you. It would seem to me that you were very much sort of nurtured by that group of people. Would you? I, 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 I was very lucky to be supported in, um, in, in what I was interested in. And I think and my father was also very interested in child development. So I think we were like, little guinea pigs for him yeah. to and i think that um I, I i always drew and and enjoyed drawing and was quite good at drawing so that was a good sort of starting point um, was that was that one of your sort of i mean what were you like out academically as a child did you err towards the drawing and the the visual side, or was yes, it? Yes, totally. Very... Yes, it, it feels very predictable. I wish I could yeah. say I was sort of academically. Yes, well, I, I was very interested in mathematics actually. Yeah, but um, uh, and really and enjoyed maths, but I, I wasn't by any means a kind of gift, gifted mathematician. Yeah, uh, I've always been quite um, pra- sort of quite practical and really wanting to understand uh, a very sort of gut level things um basic level um and for me when maths turned into very pure and um sort of took its feet away from practicality it lost all interest for me so Mm. i was um i got a for maths and things like that but uh it it then suddenly got to thing and i wasn't interested in it anymore but you're always um as a child you were very quickly it seemed to me um uh 
got interested in making things, making different. I, I know f- that, for example, you made various greetings cards and so forth, and they became increasingly inventive. And I know that that love of greetings cards carries on with your annual Christmas card that you produce at Heatherwick Studio with your little... That's just because I'm a prisoner of, of making cards well, now. <laughs> it's a vicious I circle. Because you know, design is always a prisoner of making cards because I think most designers can usually draw and if they're in jobs that are not creative, as certainly in my case I was, you always get asked to draw the birthday cards and the, and the cards <laughs> of people and then we do become prisoners. But you, you've, you seem to... I mean, certainly the cards I've seen that you've produced. I mean, the ones when you were very young... Thomas Heatherwick were you were interested in folding and uh, sort of concertinas and uh, die cutting and flaps and all sorts of things, which seems quite interesting for a very small boy. And they were very contained, it seemed to me, quite small. Well, I've I've been interested in inventions and I sort of things that do things that I've and um, things that are interesting to me. And so I've always liked what what things do and why they do them and not just um the two-dimensional image i've i've been inter- interested really i suppose in function way things work and so the cards that i was experimenting with were uh i was trying to i suppose do things i couldn't see that were available at that time there weren't three-dimensional cards particularly that did many things so i was there experimenting with making uh, a card that made it like a toaster that the pieces of toast that came up had writing on them. I'm cheesy. It sounds yeah, really cheesy yeah, yeah. now when I say it, but uh, it was, I enjoyed figuring out how these things could work. And, um, and at the same time I was there trying to think about you know, how could you make a sledge be more comfortable? Could you make a pneumatic sledge and could you, and sort of, so I was, um, the value of ideas was kind of growing and, and, s- uh, certainly, uh, I think my grand- grandfather had been very interested in because he'd been born just at the end of the Victorian era when it, the, there was this explosion of innovation and yeah. inventiveness yeah. and courage at doing it, really um, making extraordinary bridges, um, steam, power, all these different kinds of forms of power mm. that would and um, People like Brunel had been there doing really incredible things. And And you would go off with your grandfather to see pumping stations and things like that. Is that right? Because that's what tickled him and really interested him. And and the mining and things like that. And uh, so I I found that brilliant. And um, so much more interesting than football or rugby or cricket or anything like that. So I... I, What about your father and music? Did that have a... An affection. What, what? Well, I think for my father, he he um, his. I mean, my my grandmother was a uh, was a servant at Windsor Castle, and uh, she um, and then she moved to Newmarket, and um, and she so she sort of lived in quite a sort of small world really. And he him music for him was this way to to. Uh, discover an artist the, the this world of artistic thinking right okay and uh, some of and the he was he was very gifted as a as a as a musician and uh won a um one of the national 
prizes for a pianist when he was just 14. And um, that meant that he was he was being taught from then on by really good teachers. And those teachers, they might be teaching piano, but they suddenly were able to shed, throw a world into him that um, sort of really expanded him. And then when he joined the, the Marines, that was another way he was in the, the band and the musical side. So you suddenly you were meeting really extraordinary people mm. um, because of the music, this music link. So yeah. he got very interested in um, the design of clothes, the things, all sorts of things. And so that's uh, as a child, if you're in tow of someone who's genuinely got a real interest in yeah. What's the, what are those sculptures? Off. What are those music? What's yeah. the, what, how's the, what kind of car is that? And what, so uh, I, the design council at that point had a public face. I know. And it, so we would go in Haymarket. And Haymarket. Oh, cool. It was wonderful. And okay. so my father and that I would go into the, the tail end of it. it yeah, yeah, sadly. It, it ran right through the sixties and fifties and sixties and I think into the seventies. And then I think it closed. I think even into the 80s, actually. I think it was there for quite a lot of the 80s and then, yeah. and then got um, sort of lost its public face. It but did, but for me, that that was um, something sort of leapt when I w- went in there and at the, the different times and saw the different exhibitions that were just on, free, and they were free, accessible. Which I, no? And I think that's the thing that's really lacking because now, OK, we have museums that are free, but I think to have a design resource center like that free where you can go and see the latest design innovations whether it be it furniture whatever it might be electrical goods or white goods and they had a if i remember rightly in the basement they had a um a directory where you could go and literally look mm. up all the designers and it would tell you all and it seemed to be a great idea great pity anyway this so this leads me on to the fact that um so i can see that you were you know inspired by the people around you your parents and your grandparents and you went off to study 3d uh, design at manchester polytechnic um how did college life suit you how did you find that um the, you moved away from home i guess yeah um i i i, I think i was uh, i had a fantastic time in, at manchester because um i was able to you know in a way as a, as a when you're at school, you're kind of a prisoner. Your your time is de- is decided by everyone else. But when suddenly, when you're finally you you don't have to do any subject because someone says you should. You're really it's a manifestation of your interest. That's why you're there. It's purely so. My life just suddenly leapt forward when I finished school into being able to be. It was a hundred percent about what um, what really interested me. So you were very so much self-disciplined. So there was driven. So yeah. So I, I mean, I I've wanted to be a designer since I was tiny. So it's been there's been no. I feel it's very boring. There's not been any moment of kind of that's what you know change change of direction or any choice. There's not been it's just been a line. Yeah. Um, it's from ine- from then for, for, forward. So when I was at, at Manchester, we there was there were some really good people and we spurred each other on. There was a, a kind of competitiveness that was because when you when you're around people who are really um, onto something, absolutely, it, the, that really um, spurred things on. Yeah, and actually, it always does. And and, and uh, so it actually, interestingly, I found that more at 
Manchester than at the Royal College. I think there are different times that different. So I felt much more on my own and um, at the Royal College. Yes. Um, But so the so while while at Manchester, it was possible to uh, really take ideas. And and I think the, the tutors who are there were interested to expand what a course called three dimensional design could be. Mm. And so when I wanted to build a a building, mm. um, there was a bit of hilarity, but then they really got behind it. And there was, we found a man who would help with sponsorship, who's in a department with no one asking him to help them. And so he, he, he got about 20,000 pounds worth of materials to build this building. And then all the students, um, in the year below, decided they'd help me to do it and we got our own workshop so i spent a year building a building there that was um uh and and there was an engineer from the that who was a tutor who'd worked so i worked at his house at the weekends to engineer this and so there was a kind of interesting kind of real for me a flourishing of an interest and um and and being supported in that yeah that um it sounds interesting you just mentioned that um, you would spend weekends at your tutor's house makes a direct connection back with terence conrad it seems that you befriend people and your enthusiasm perhaps infects them and suddenly you've been sort of adopted by me for a short while to do to work on projects well i think maybe it's it's maybe it's that way or the other way around in that i've i sort of found there's something very cold when you're there as students lined up in rows and their desks supposed to be doing something good. Yeah. And I found things sort of came alive when, when I was working with people. Yeah. And so I've, I've, I've clung on to people, to people around me who, um, and sort of made, made groupings to make things happen. Yeah. And, uh, because I can't do them by myself and yeah. they need, um, many people's brains and yeah. so um so they they are that other person's project as well as my own um and so that's that's what things like colleges i think it can be quite poor at, at doing because yeah. uh oh, but it's i, I well, think you, it's very much up to the students initiative yeah. to figure out their way handling that's things. interesting because i think in design quite often um and i'm in a different area of design than you are but i i've noticed myself over the years that often designers tend to be silo thinking they they want to keep everything to themselves almost like at school when you didn't want anyone to copy you, you your arm around your work mm. and i feel sometimes designers do that for whatever reason and it's to do sometimes with wanting to be credited for something and it's jealousies and and all of that sort of thing but the fact of the matter is the moment you share an idea with somebody who's also creative it, it, it expands the whole thing it can and and usually good comes out of it if you can be that generous seems to me and i think that you know more people collaborating or brainstorming or whatever just uh, you know i mean one out. one way to see it is if it's really generous yeah. another way to see it is that without that you won't get what you want out of it anyway yeah. so it's in a funny kind of way it's selfish to share <laughs> if that makes sense because no, then it's so uh, it's actually it was out of pure necessity that i found and pleasure you know and yeah. my pleasure was that we have in um by by clinging desperately to people around it something actually turned into something more interesting for all of us somehow or other. I, so i think the interesting about um 
the interesting thing about you is that you you term yourself simply as a 3D designer or a three-dimensional designer. You don't categorize yourself in any other way. 3, 3D design is sort of very wide. And um, that seems to me to be a, a very good idea because, for example, you know, there are one or two uh, design engineers within the faculty who are trying single-handedly to to raise the profile of the engineer uh, who is often submerged under the egos of architects and often their contribution is you know absolutely amazing in terms of not only the structure but the look of things they yeah. have a, but often you know it's the architect that's right up there and the engineer gets but you seem to very cleverly cut right through that by not really applying yourself to any of those names mm-hmm. is that was that an intentional thing or it's just uh n- no really it wasn't um i i I thought about studying architecture, but the at that time, uh, it, architecture was uh, something that I think it now it's, I think, in a different place than it was 20 years ago. It was very cerebral and quite cold. And, and in terms of architects being, the in a way, the makers of the biggest objects that are around and therefore utterly makers you know makers yeah. at, at that time i i was there and the the courses that were available were being taught by no one who'd ever made anything and teaching young 18 year olds to be intellectuals rather than to my mind the interesting thing you didn't there was you didn't need to design design a little whirring machine or abstract form of poetry the interesting thing was to design a building that wasn't base that wasn't the interesting thing was how you could design a building to have these special qualities. And the, it seemed almost scared to design real buildings. And so I've, I've actually, which I don't think now it's in, a, I think now it's in a very different position. But so I swerved away from that. So I, um, and sort of felt that there was such a connection between the smallest things and the largest things and the kinds of ideas that you might have for a small thing that may influence thinking on a large scale and vice versa. So I, I went for this middle, that something that I, I really liked, that the, the course in Manchester was called three-dimensional design. Mm. That, to me, is my specialisation. Yeah. I'm a specialist. Which covers on one area. a broad spectrum. But it's it not. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't do sound and I don't do flat no, things. No, no. So, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, you know, so it's, it's, um, so I, it's, I don't feel that I've, I've, it wasn't a kind of, um, it's not a. a it, it's kind of a. It's genuine. It's, it's just genuine. It's a genuine. It's genuine yeah. response to um, and expression of what I'm I, I'm interested in doing. And the studio has evolved to have um, people who are from I suppose have done more specialised courses. Yeah. Um, but we all this work in this area, at which um, for me feels quite specialised, but. Um, I, I mentioned in the introduction to this program um, a project that I think uh, certainly singled you out as special, and that was the the Harvey Nichols window display, which for which you at the time I remember won a DNAD Gold Award, which was quite a a coup. And the display itself was phenomenal. I mean, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. I don't think anyone else had. Um, that seemed to introduce what to a certain extent had become um, 
not a hallmark, but a, a passion, which is a sort of undulating and organic shapes, which seem to reoccur in your work or you seem to have a fascination for. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that kind of fluidity of mm. thinking? I've noticed that I saw in the documentary program, you produced this very interesting, um, uh, I think it's a sausage skin, which um, it sort of, it was like a magician's um, um, series of, of, of silk handkerchiefs that you just mm. keep pulling it out. You seem to have a, a take on things, unusual things that you 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 automatically seem to see the possibility in them um, and transfer them to another place. Is is that how? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Harvey Nichols thing particularly was. I mean, the shapes were were bizarre. I felt at the time mm-hmm. it was a bizarre event that's so dramatic that it was like it had arrived from another planet. For me, anyway, uh, well, because it the, just the, was... Well, there were the, I think that, um, I mean, I feel that the projects that we've worked, done and worked on in the studio have been, are, for me, I can justify everything about them logically. Um, the, that, so the, the project at Harvey Nichols started from, uh, I suppose, a self-consciousness. I feel very, uh, probably I'm that I'm very self-conscious. I'm very uh, interested in context and I suppose of myself within any context with people as well as things in their context and in the context of time as well. And I, 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 I remember being interested to hear that uh, someone saying that give me any object from any time, I can date it within five years or so because things the fashions for things are so strong yeah. um, and you can think that you're doing something out of your time, but actually it slots so easily in. I think there are very few people, maybe Gaudi had did things certainly at the yeah. time that jumped forward of the, out from their time. Um, but there were two things with that particular project at Harvey Nichols. I, I just was aware having seen many window displays that you'd look, you'd go past a bit of building and Oh look the windows. Oh, that's interesting there's Noddy or there's FX kits. And suddenly the whole, uh, all the windows of a shop, whether it's Selfridges or Harvey Nichols have got something interesting in them. Obviously the brief is be interesting to draw attention to the building, but it seemed to be literally could pick anything you like, anything possibly the more bizarre, anything just pick it and stick it in the glass and you'd stick, stick it there, you know, toothpicks, toothpicks and there it is. And but the, the the Harvey Nichols was there. The, instead of twelve, you, instead instead of twelve um, windows, in a way they're like twelve display cabinets or whatever. Um, and one way to think of it was that this is a collection of little gallery windows, and you mm. can kind of put a little display in each one. Mm. But there was also this classic thing that no one looks up at buildings, and there's actually this pretty spectacular building and normally the shop windows what's down there has nothing to do with quite historic fantastic facades of a building and that building has all these uh, brick columns coming down so one thing is to see them as glass windows and the other is to see instead a building with all these fingers coming down touching the ground and thought what would be much how could we do something that really relates to that building rather than just being any old thing and pick pick off the top of our head because fashion loves anything funky kind of interesting or different 
So I thought, instead of having 12 things, have one thing that weaves through the entire building and up the facade. Felt like it was really literally engaging and knitting in to that building and going where you're not supposed to go. You expect things to to be in a nice, well-behaved way behind the glass. And that premise of one thing weaving through the entire building meant that you both came out of the glass and in. And um, so there was, I suppose there was a a dynamism to that. And Mm. uh, in terms of the Harvey Nichols brief, which is to draw attention to themselves, just thought, well, technically something going where you wouldn't expect it to, whether you like it or not would. But then in terms of the actual shapes, um, it, it would it was very possible to do just a, almost like a snake just going in yeah. and out and that would have fitted the original budget yeah but um that just felt too easy it felt like too obvious to just because then all you'd be appreciating was oh yes they've gone out, out and in yeah and it felt that there was this other layer and i'm sort of interested in how many layers of of specialness you can give i mean i just Maybe it's greed, or I just want to make something as special as it possibly well, I, can be. So yeah, well, actually, uh, so that led on to all those shape the form exactly. Well, I what I wanted to go on to because I think that um, that those uh, early projects may have informed what, what you later went on to do. And I'm thinking now of the um, Kagoshima Temple, and I think the story. I'd like you to tell the story of the inspiration of that piece because I think it's it's such a lovely. Uh, story anyway you're meeting with the the priest and you I, I think you you stayed with him for a while certainly in his temple so perhaps you could just tell us how that extraordinary building came about well the I went to Japan and, and was introduced to the priest and his project managers and we um there was this big moment of them deciding if they were going to commission us or not and and we spoke about many things um and then there was a moment really when i started talking about making things and i didn't realize what but suddenly there was this moment where they all looked at each other and you suddenly realized something had changed in the meeting and you suddenly realized the body language suddenly they'd decided okay please come up with a design so um there was this i i it was the most enormous responsibility to be asked to to design a temple as someone who isn't Japanese or Buddhist or has ever built a temple before and so the weight on my shoulders felt just enormous we went to Kyoto and they we spent a few days there and they showed us all the temples and my my heart was there thinking oh no they they just want us to copy these temples and then there was a moment where they said we want you to understand these but we don't want you to copy these. That the, the pressure was on, you know, enormously. Um, and then the form, it, it was hard because they're so modern in their thinking. They wanted a temple that would have car parking spaces in it. And they wanted a building that would have an automated retrieval system like a jukebox to, with the cremated remains of people with, inside it. And it's these things to wrestle with about. But it would also need with the current health and safety um regulations fire escape staircases all these um conventional things in architecture which uh, all the original temples didn't need to think about and so i had to kind of close down the studio virtually and just let close its doors down or stop doing anything else not go out not leave the place just felt so 
much responsibility, which I think is the best possible thing anyone can do with for a designer. It, and so the first two we and we'd also said, I, I said that I would like four months to do this, and I'd like you to not contact us, which no one's ever said yes to that because clients are always a little bit jumpy and they want to. Could you could you just Maybe you could send me a sketch. Could, could we just see a sketch? Because I hate you to waste your time. And that, that mentality that uh, wants to check you're okay and check that. But they agreed to not. So we had this intensive time and I stayed with him in his porter cabin with his plastic porter loo on the, on the site that looks out at a volcano. And uh, so spent the first two months trying to work out how to put the spaces together. And then, and then began really how how should it really feel and how what will the form be and how can this really sit into the site and the, this very steep piece of land and um and it actually the form in in the end that came came about from looking at fabric and the uh, the wonderful uh, religious fabrics that the the priest wears these thick thick very manly and yet very feminine fabrics that's so butch mm. right, but beautiful but beautiful at the same time and uh was i was very keen to try and pull together all these strange things that a building needs and not break it up into here's the emergency escape staircase here's the main temple space into a composition i didn't want it to become what architectures so often becomes as a a sort of delicate composition of geometrical components or interesting shape components but to make it one cohesive whole and fabric allowed this possibility and made stopped me over designing it it let the fabric almost designed it sculpturally for one and so then uh, the studio is based in king's cross around the corner from the royal nose throat near hospital and they they have this 3d scanner for scanning faces particularly of children before and after operations and they we worked with them and they scanned our big fabric models that we were making in the workshop and that enabled us to um work digitally to, at a very high level with how the the building functioning and building construction could work so um it was a very interesting project and, from different and, angles and it is a most wonderful building and that that takes me on to the the Bly Jason uh, project at the Wellcome Foundation headquarters, which um, if if anyone listening to this um, uh, to this program hasn't seen, they really should go if you're in the vicinity of London, because it's, I think, one of the most beautiful pieces uh, of work. And I, it's difficult to I think this is where you kind of blur the boundaries between if you like, design and in quotes, fine art, because I see that every bit uh, as a piece of sculptural art. Um, and I know that with your other project, the big project, the um, Bee of the Bang in Manchester, there at the time there was, I think, a little bit of tension about is this person an artist? And uh, you were compared with Gormley and his Angel of the North and, and so on. And there was this... I mean, that's back to labelling again. And that seems, for someone like you, very irritating, I would think, you know, that you're, that these little arguments go on around, you know, is this person an artist? Should it have gone to a sculptor? 
I mean, what, what, do you, what do you feel about that? Because I, as I say, I think that the, the Blydeeson, um, project and, and I love the serendipity, which I'd like to tell the story about how that name came about. Mm. I mean, first of all, I think we should describe it. Um, this is a, um, this is a, a, in the atrium of the Wellcome Foundation. It consists of 150,000 glass spheres. And it is then suspended on 27,000 wires spanning 30 meters in height, which is phenomenal. And I know that the, um, that your mother's expertise in beads and as a child, um, you were aware of her bead curtain and there was a kind of link there, which I think is, is, uh, is charming. But I think that the, the, the lovely part of the story is how the title came about. Yeah. But the, well, this, the, the, yeah, the, the the name came about because the form we'd been experimenting to try and find. We had quite a tight brief for the project. There was a pool of water, a very tall, high space, and the idea of making a big sculptural object that could go there. That, but you couldn't get anything into the building because there was no big doors. So we got irritated and almost thought, "Well, oh, we'll just design something that comes through the letterbox of this building." So that sort of broke it down into making small components rather than big components door-shaped components and then the thing in terms of the form itself because this was there was a pool of water built into the building to to have a sculpture above it we didn't want to just put anything above a pool of water because that seemed a cliched idea of what sculptures should be above and what they're like in buildings so we thought well what's that water that's down there like if you drop it what do liquids do and because I'd seen some amazing footage of the forms of, of liquids as they fall and thought, well, in a way, that'll be more interesting than anything I'm going to make. Any form I'm going to make is probably not going to be as interesting as just liquid falling. So in the end, we found the best way to capture that. We tried all sorts of experiments, but was by pouring molten metal into water. And in a fraction of a second, you get this absolutely incredible shapes. They're tiny, about 50 millimeters high. But we, so we did literally hundreds and hundreds and picked the one that fitted this building and sort of worked with the programming of the building, the bridges, the different levels, made a sort of variety and worked sculpturally um, as well as physically and made it 30 meters high rather than 50 millimeters high. So yes. each scaled the scale up but and used a laser scanner. But then when my grandmother came to the studio, um, she, she said, what is this project you've, you're one to work on? What's, what's this? Because she's always interested in what we work on. And she's worked for the last 30 years as an art therapist in Germany after she finished working at Marks and Spencer's. Yeah. Um, and she just suddenly said, well, this is Bleigießen. What? This weird sort of slight, almost ugly sounding mm. word. And she said, this is um, East German, uh, Eastern European tradition every uh, Christmas you um and for, for for new year you pour molten lead into water and the shapes you get you put on your palm and you read them you interpret them to to tell you about the future your future that year and it seemed very appropriate in totally post rationalized way that yes, the project we'd intuited and designed felt right for that building which is a new building yeah. which is for the future of the yeah. welcome trust yeah. this biomedical research charity that its future was going to be defined by what's also used for telling the future in in europe in the eastern part of europe so it was just sort of that that was totally uh 
jammy coincidence no, but so so that word we couldn't really avoid that word it seemed appropriate to the project so i love those serendipity <laughs> yeah. things um we're just going to come forward now towards the end another building which i i'd be very interested to know at what stage this building is at i saw images of the what i think is being termed as the kebab building can you tell me a bit about that we we've been commissioned by we've been commissioned by a, a developer to look at uh a, at making a taller scale building um and it's it's kind of in development at the moment and it's the site at the moment is still confidential but it's on the site of a tube station mm-hmm. um and it's uh, relatively close to the m1 and so it's actually it, one of if certainly when i went to manchester in my little car you'd come back to london and this when you've been driving for four hours your first impressions of london is quite uh what constitutes london as people from the north of england drive in um your those first buildings are quite you're looking for am i there yet am i there yet am i nearly there finally and um so this building a taller building meant it's going to be one of the one of the main things you see as you come into London, and so we I was very aware that this was an opportunity to um, uh, not only mark a part of a quite rundown part of London, and not only to as information let people in the area know where the tube station is that currently is quite hard to find, but it also had this other job three dimensionally. Um, as a sort of little signpost representing London, mm-hmm. uh, so in an otherwise quite low-rise area. So this sort of evolved into looking at the idea of um, tall buildings. And having spent a bit of time in um, uh, Hong Kong recently and looking in the Far East and seeing tall, tall buildings and okay. and tall buildings really splendidly tall, um, the, and the the trend of how they they almost look like you've gone to Woolworths and there's, you've got get 20, get 10 free. You know, this pile just piling up and piling up, just uh, these sort of thrusting vertical towers. Was I was interested in how could we make a tall building that maybe was, uh, was not slightly less of the obvious male boys fantasy thrusting thing with all its associations and was there some way to sort of soften what this these a taller building might be and uh, this step of making it actually three buildings rather than one building and uh, but using the lift and uh, staircase through as a, as a core almost like a skewer through mm. and so it sort of evolved into i suppose quite a north london thing which is uh, a like a shish kebab yeah. literally of these three buildings but the, the they've evolved in that way because that gives them the possibility to have many balconies which has been part of the brief um to allow um gardens and uh which are built into the building rather than just sort of sterile vertical residential blocks that actually look very similar to office towers and uh leave me quite cold so we've been trying to look at affordable ways to make building cladding and to make this to work. So it's it's been very exciting things to work on. I think on the kebab building, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Thomas Hathaway. Thank you, Mike.